Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. At least one hospital in the Bay Area is reinstating its mask mandate. Kaiser Permanente Medical Center in Santa Rosa wants patients, staff, and visitors to mask again as the region and the state see an uptick in COVID-19 cases. With that and the rise of new subvariants, many are wondering how worried to be. UCSF's Dr. Peter Chin Hong told the San Francisco Chronicle that people should not be worried but should not tune out. Chin Hong joins Forum to explain and to take your COVID questions. Plus, we'll learn about a new fall booster and a new long COVID study. So stay tuned. Forum is next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Concerns about COVID never really ended for many of us, but if you were able to let it slip from being top of mind, you might be finding yourself worrying again, either because you were recently infected or a lot of people around you seem to be. Indeed, COVID case rates are on the rise in California and the nation. So we asked friend of the show, UCSF's Dr. Peter Chin Hong to join us and help us better understand the current status of COVID. Also, what's in the new booster that's supposed to roll out this fall, and what new information we're learning about long COVID. Peter, so glad to have you back on. So great to be back on, Mina. (laughs) Well, first, remind us how we know cases are on the rise in California when most people test at home. So we know cases are on the increase from a bunch of metrics right now. Um, First, The wastewater has been increasing in terms of the genetic material from COVID, the virus that causes COVID. And that has been ticking off for some time. Um, And then it kind of shot up in the, you know, since mid-July or so. The second reason we know things are going up is that uh, hospitalizations, emergency department visits are increasing by about 20%. And we started seeing that, you know, I would say towards the end of July. And then the, the, the third reason, of course, is that it seems that everybody you know uh, has COVID now, or at least people you know in your circle uh, have been telling you they've tested positive. So were you expecting this sort of end of summer uptick? Because typically I think we think of that happening in the fall and winter. Well, it turns out that this is a fourth consecutive uh, summer of COVID. It may mean that COVID becomes a twice a year with a smaller, what we think of as a swell in the summer, hopefully, and a larger increase in cases in the winter. And this year in particular, um, there was a new 
you know, aspect, which was the intense heat waves, which kind of acted like a winter, if you think about it, because people are gathering indoors more often um, mm-hmm. because of the intense heat outside. The second reason uh, is, of course, declining immunity and the usual people getting together. And of course, the Taylor Swift effect. The Taylor Swift effect. <laughs> um, that's such an interesting point with regard to the fact that summer drives people indoors just as much as winter can drive people indoors. And then is the new variant playing a role? Can you tell us actually what the dominant variant is in California right now and whether or not that's what's being also attributed in a big way to the rise that we're seeing? I think people are starting to suspect the role of the new variant that's dominant now as part of the picture, but it's probably not the only thing. And the reason why is that um, the changes from variant to variant or subvariant to subvariant these days, since the beginning of the year, have been very incremental. So going from a Delta to an Omicron was about 30 mutations, but going from you know, one of these XBBs, another one, it's might maybe one or two mutations, but every time it mutates, it gets a little bit better at transmission. So right now we have this variant that's just a bunch of letters and numbers that people won't remember called EG5. It's about 21% of cases. And that's, you know, a family member of XBB. And the reason why that's important is because the new vaccine in the fall is going to be based on XBB. So we think it will still be a good match. However, there's another variant uh, that people are looking at called BA 2.86. Mm. <laughs> um, and that that I know is just a bunch of letters, but the reason people are looking at it is that, you know, it has a little bit more mutations, but we don't necessarily know if it's going to take over the world, so to speak. I see. What do we know about its transmissibility or whether it's more dangerous uh, than its ancestors? So I think um, whenever we see some of these new subvariants, you know, we always ask, is it more transmissible? Do the vaccines or therapies still work? And does it cause more serious disease? So far, like every time there's a new variant, uh, knock on wood, um, it hasn't really been causing more serious disease. It's just becoming more and more transmissible, um, luckily. And part of the reason why it hasn't been causing more serious diseases because we have become better. The soil in which the virus is landing is becoming more inhospitable. So you can give me like the craziest um, variant, but uh, we are going to be in a very different place than if we were in March of 2020 based on the immune experience of the population. Okay, so then based on what you're telling us about the rise in COVID cases, the variants that are circulating right now, do you recommend behavior changes to minimize risk to ourselves or to other people, especially people who are more at risk? Yes, I think it's the time when people should start thinking about, um, you know, their risk going out and about in the world. And there are two reasons to think about risk or two ways to think about it. One, of course, is if you're older, um, particularly older than 65, particularly if you're older than 80, and if you're immune compromised of any age, because immunity wanes faster in you than in uh, 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 other members of the population, um, you might be more at risk of getting seriously ill uh, because most people have gotten the last vaccine last fall when it was available or infected over the last winter. The second reason or second way to think about it is, you know, are you planning a family reunion or an event or um, an, a trip somewhere 
can you really afford to get infected now? Because it's still going to be, uh, you know, a matter of isolating and sort of for a little bit and sort of worrying about, uh, you know, infecting others, um, you know, missing work and school. So I think these are the two things that we're thinking about uh, or the ways to think about your risk going out into the world. Hmm. So you were quoted in a San Francisco Chronicle as saying people should not be worried, but should not tune out. Is this basically what you're referring to? Or is there more that you meant by that, Peter? I think that people shouldn't worry because we really actually have enough tools in this country right now at this moment to drive deaths down to almost zero. And it's just a matter of um, knowing what these tools are and knowing who you are. And I think it's become so complex for your average person to understand how to mix and match all of these interventions. But the, you know, if we we do know how to get Paxlovid, for example, if you are at risk for getting seriously ill, even if you weren't vaccinated, even if you were at high risk, uh, you could really stave off serious infection. And that's what I mean, uh, not tuning out, but um, but, you know, sort of still navigating the world because we can still make all of us safe. Dr. Peter Chinhong is an infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center. What are your questions for him about the status of COVID today, about the new booster, new variants? Are you planning to get it? Did you or a loved one recently contract COVID? What was your experience? You can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org, post comments or questions on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And Wendy tweets, where can I find any reliable data on infection rates? I don't have the data or tools to track this. I have only the vaccine, which we know does not prevent infection. What would you say to Wendy? So I think, you know, unfortunately for all of us right now, because of uh, cuts in funding, we don't have day-to-day or region-to-region uh, calibration of risk anymore. But there are some crude measures. I think one measure uh, that the CDC has promoted is uh, their map of the U.S., which is now color-coded into three colors red, yellow, and green. Um, and it just really shows what hospitalizations are doing. So if you um, you know, just go to that covid.cdc.gov, COVID data tracker, or just Google COVID data tracker CDC, you'd see that map. And right now, most of the country is still in green because our hospitals aren't luckily strained right now. But there are a few country uh, counties, uh, increasingly so in the yellow range, And the reason why these colors are important is because they help us kind of think about masking. So when it's red, which nobody is right now, everyone should mask. When it's yellow, uh, we think about high-risk populations masking for sure. Um, And when it's green, you know, I think it's more uh, a matter of personal choice in terms of risk. So that's the way to think about it. But of course, hospitalization is often a lagging indicator. So on the other end, you have wastewater epidemiology. So if you Google even California DPH, uh, there is uh, by region uh, graphs showing you what the wastewater looks like in in different areas and how it's changed over time. For example, the southeast San Francisco has really shut up in the last two weeks or so, I would say, and there isn't a plateau yet. But if you look at L.A., it's just kind of gradually going up. That kind of gives you a good picture of what's happening in the population in the particular region. 
Um, and that's probably a little bit more, uh, you know, minute to minute compared to the CDC maps because that's hospitalization. And apart from that, there isn't any other great way, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, I think those are the tools that we have these days. Yeah. Let me go to caller Scott in San Francisco. Hi, Scott. Join us. Hi. Good morning. I wanted Hi, to uh, say I live I live in the southeast section of San Francisco. <laughs> I was a little distressed to hear you mention that the shot up over here. I had I had seven shots, three Vice, Pfizer, uh, three Moderna, and one Pfizer, and I still caught it. It lasted about two days, and I was wondering, is a new vaccine out and available? If when so, it, would it do me any good to take it? Uh, yeah, when is it coming out, Peter, the fall one, and would it do, Scott, any good to take it, he's asking? First of all, Scott, um, thank you for uh, sharing your story. I'm sorry you got COVID recently. Yeah. Um in terms of the new vaccine, it is going to be a better match to what's been circulating in the country uh, for all of this calendar year, essentially. Uh, it's expected to be available at the end of September or early October. Um, it should be free to everyone still, um, especially in California. And then it's just a matter of timing, I think, for some people. Um, the, the FDA still has to formally approve it, which everybody thinks they will. And the CDC then has to give recommendations as to who will get it. So I think these are the things that we'll wait for. Yeah, and we've got some questions along those lines we'll get to right after the break. We're taking your current state of COVID questions on forum and you can share them by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting on Facebook, Instagram, Discord at KQED forum. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about rising COVID cases in California, about the fall booster, the newest Omicron variant, with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center. And we're hearing your questions uh, at 866-733-6786 on email, forum at kqed.org, and on our social channels at kqedforum. 
curious if you're planning on getting the new fall booster. And the reason that I ask our listeners that, Peter, is because California is still tracking the percentage of people who are up to date on COVID vaccinations, which it defines as having one booster with a bivalent vaccine for most people. And it's just over 20%. And when you think about, you know, how 72% of the state got the first vaccine series, I'm wondering about whether or not we're seeing maybe booster apathy, um, booster fatigue. We have a listener who writes, I have COVID fatigue. Um, If you think we are and whether that worries you. Yes, uh, it definitely worries me. I think uh, booster fatigue, COVID fatigue, I think misinformation and disinformation uh, really keep me up at night. Um, but I think the CDC was trying to be real by kind of listening to the to the vibe and the mood of the country in terms of trying to simplify everything. And that's why we're, we're moving, hopefully, to once a year. Uh, everyone, let's just, you know, repair the roof before the winter and we can kind of hunker down and, you know, think about flu and COVID and RSV for some at the same time of the year, every year, um, and particularly with focus on some individuals. So I think that's what it's boiled on to instead of, you know, counting up, did I have three shots or one Pfizer, one Moderna and two infections? Uh, You know, the math has become so complex that uh, it's become overwhelming. Uh, I can't even remember. I have to look at my vaccine card. So I think that's kind of why, this fall push is being made for simplicity, streamlining, and for peace of mind. Well, we've got a couple of people asking about when they should get it if they got a booster at a certain time. So this listener writes, as a senior, earlier this month, I got the latest booster. Now I hear this new one will be out in September. Will I need to get another booster before the end of this year to stay protected? Those are all great questions. Um, They will be addressed when the CDC gives their recommendations for the fall vaccine. And people may remember when the new bivalent booster came out, they were a little bit more forgiving in terms of, um, you know, not having to wait too long since your last shot because it was a new formulation. In fact, it was about two months. We know that when people get infected, you have a little bit more of a force shield. So you can also wait uh, generally, we say three months, so like a few months before you can get the new shot, but you still get good protection from the previous vaccine. On the other hand, you know, it's kind of like the Goldilocks phenomenon with fall vaccines, including influenza. You get it too early. You kind of miss the boat with immune, the peak immune protection when the flu season hits. You get it too late. You might be too much at risk. So what is just right? Uh, it might be anywhere before Halloween, but we are not sure when and if the winter surge will hit or increase in cases. So that's why people are generally thinking September, October, definitely October might be a good time to kind of, you know, put yourself in good shape unless you were recently infected or vaccinated for with the older, uh, you know, uh, bivalent, in which case it will be safer to wait a little bit. Hmm. Well, Mimi has a similar question about being over 65, having gotten the latest booster in June and wondering whether to get another one. But Mimi also asks, can you get too many boosters? Maybe wondering. Uh, That's a great question from Mimi. And actually a question that a lot of scientists raise because um, there is a theoretical idea that um, of something called immune imprinting where the body's immune system just remembers the first thing it gets exposed to really well. But then when you give them updated things, 
it may not remember it uh, quite as well. In other words, um, if you got the original vaccine and then you got the bivalent, it kind of remembers the original uh, configuration of the original variant more than the new signal. But that's been more theoretical and hasn't really been borne out. Um, so, you know, that that so far, most people think it's going to be OK, particularly when we are trying to give fewer shots now and, and just think about once a year for most people. Well, this listener writes, why can't there be a whole virus vaccine rather than a vaccine against a spike protein? Could the vaccine cause autoimmune problems? Oh, so a lot of great questions in, in, in that um you know, suite of of inquiry. So I think that in terms of uh, a universal COVID vaccine, that is the holy grail. Of course, if you get one of those, then, you know, you don't have to kind of keep on calibrating or updating the the boost. And people are working on that. Um, I think we probably would get something in the next, I think it's more medium term, maybe two years, three years. They're also working on that for influenza as well. So, um, you know, whether or not, you know, we can get a universal in influenza vaccine that would last a little bit longer instead of waiting uh, a few years. And then um, you can also think about the future as combination vaccines. So maybe as soon as next year, we might see a com combined influenza and COVID in one vial. So just one needle. And then finally, with the second question about autoimmune diseases or reactions from the vaccine. Uh, there isn't really great evidence for that yet, um, and, and probably more um, autoimmune risk from um, getting infected at this moment, given the evidence that we have. Well, let me go back to the phones. Lily in Davis. Hi, Lily. Go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, you kind of maybe have answered my question already, but um, my family... My husband and I and my three children, five and under, uh, recently got COVID for the first time at the end of June and early July. Um, and now that the kids are back at school um, and unmasked, because that is the way of the world, it seems now, um, I'm wondering what is the likelihood that we will get reinfected um, having just had it? And it seems like our best defense at this point is, is not maybe like in three months or so getting revaccinated with a booster. Thanks, Lily. That's a great question from Lily. So right now, because the variant to variant changes aren't too great, like I mentioned, just one or two mutations, getting um, exposed in the end of July would probably give you at least kind of three months force field uh, in general, because even the new thing going around BA 2.86, I'm sorry, uh, EG5 is, is not too different from the one before that. Um, so that's kind of when immunity from infection risk will start wearing off. Of course, your immunity for uh, serious disease will continue for a very long time, maybe a year or so. So I think that's kind of what the time frame we're looking at. If something new comes on board that has like a zillion more mutations, like this one people are talking about, uh, Parola or BA 2.86, and becomes dominant, uh, you may get infected sooner, but you won't get seriously ill. Well, Lily, thanks for the question. Um, and, 
you know, she was saying about masking and not masking at school as kind of the way of the world. You know, Aaron on Discord writes, my 92-year-old uncle recently contracted COVID in a routine hospital visit and a few weeks later was hospitalized with COVID and pneumonia for five days. He survived. I'm glad to hear it, Aaron. Hospitals in California should be following the law on the books that requires effective virus source control standards, including indoor universal masking if need be. COVID has not gone away. It continues to disable and cause strokes and heart attacks. COVID is very serious. High filtration masks save lives. I mentioned in our billboard that at least one hospital that I know of, Kaiser Permanente Medical Center in Santa Rosa, is reinstating their mask mandate. What do you think about this in healthcare settings, um, Peter? I mean, I think it's it is a dynamic picture. Um, I think for for California hospitals, based on the guidance from the California Department of Public Health for providers. Uh, we never took our masks off. We still haven't. So that already keeps that um, that environment safer. I, and I think the additional step like the Kaiser Hospital in Santa Rosa would be whether or not a mask mandate or guidance would be issued for visitors, including patients, in addition to what's already happening with providers. So, um, you know, I think they, I think we need a little bit better um, metric of maybe when we should do that and, and the time of year. And, um, you know, just like we have done that in winters. Um, but I think, you know, um, luckily the, the masks that we have available are high quality. And even if uh, an individual wears a mask with the clinicians wearing masks too, that, that would, uh, you know, decrease the risk in a place that's really well ventilated. But again, it's, Different places have different risks. Uh, I know a lot of clinics, for example, outside of a system may not be as as great about masking, um, you know, uh, out and about. So I think, you know, I, you know, maybe as a patient, uh, you carry your mask around and, you know, I'm sure anyone you encounter in a health system, if you don't see them or wearing a mask would be happy if you sort of like, you know, ask politely that you'd feel better if they, you know, kept their mask on. Let me go to caller Jessica in Sunnyvale. Jessica, you're on. Hi, thank you so much. Um, in regards to the map that the CDC uses to track hospitalization prior in the pandemic, they were using a different map to track community transition, transmission, I'm sorry. So I was wondering if you could explain, I have a two-part question, The first, and this is the first part, um, explain why the CDC changed it to hospitalizations, which seems to be a lagging indicator of community transmission. Um, yeah. Thanks. That's a great question. And it's all about um, where we are in the pandemic. But, you know, if you really asked the real answer, it's just because there isn't the data coming in. When we, uh, you know, move to a place where this is not a national um, uh, public health emergency anymore, uh, there wasn't a requirement for people to report back data. And plus, a lot of people are not testing anymore. So the CDC couldn't use um, the other metric, which was, you know, a measure of the case rate in the community. They could have switched to wastewater, but not all wastewater facilities are reporting data. And it's only a representative number. And um, the scales are used differently in each place. So it was kind of like a situation of both where we were in the pandemic and the data that they had, because hospitals are still mandated to report um well, at least they they can report data back to the CDC. Although, um, you know, one would say that not, you know there isn't theoretically a, a mandate 
for that, but but they are reporting still the the hospitalizations for COVID. And what was your second question, Jessica? Because we're, thank you so much. And because we are at a different stage of the pandemic, but we know now that our therapeutics do not prevent infection, reinfection, nor do they prevent transmission from one person to another. Because of the emerging data of how many people develop along COVID, even people who see, don't have comorbidities beforehand, um, what can you say to where we are now in the pandemic, knowing that it does cause autoimmunity, does cause chronic disablement. How do we protect ourselves knowing that we have technically the tools, but that the government isn't providing those tools anymore in the form of testing and tracing, in the form of free high-quality masks, in the form of PCR testing in your communities, in the form of updating air ventilation in schools and indoor workplaces, in providing, you know, the CDC once said that you need to stay home for 10 days if you have the virus, but now it's five days. We don't have OSHA workplace standards. So a lot of people don't even know about long COVID. So where can you, can you talk, talk us through where we're at in the pandemic now and why so many of these protective measures that we do know work are now gone from our lives? Thanks, Jessica. Well, Jessica, you bring up a whole host of good questions. Um, that's that's really, really, I, I think, tough to sort of grasp in its entirety. And I, I do know that, um, you know, there are, uh, you know, many, there's there's a risk of, of getting COVID every time you get it. But I would say that overall, um, the risk is lower, uh, say, even of chronic conditions than before. And we can get into that a little bit more. But yes, I mean, I... I do worry that uh, particularly testing not being available uh, and that being the gateway to a lot of just people's knowledge that what they have needs to, you know, be addressed with therapeutics and, 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 you know, a risk of, of chronic conditions and things like that. I do worry that this is not, you know, being, is not easily available at all. It's, it's expensive. Um, yeah. So I can only say that we'll continue to, to follow the, the, the course of serious disease uh, and the impact on a system, but, and, and more importantly, the impact on people, even if they don't get seriously ill uh, moving forward. What do we know about long COVID? I know that new study came out just this past week, and I think it was the first one now to look at it for two years, right? Since we've had enough time in the infection um, or, or with people with long COVID to be able to make some additional findings. What did it say? Yeah, so it was interesting. Uh, this was a study from the veterans group in St. Louis, uh, who's been uh, really doing some great work uh, over the pandemic in terms of understanding chronic uh, conditions that people can get after COVID infection. So what they found in this uh, most recent study published in Nature Medicine was um, uh People who were infected, veterans who were infected early in the pandemic in 2020, essentially, when they looked at them two years later, about 25% of the, them, uh, of that bulk of them, was still uh, having some um, uh, sequelae or some problems associated with long COVID, including, um, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease, clots, diabetes, gastrointestinal illness, and kidney problems, um, together with, with an increased risk of death. Um, but, you know, I think what we know so far is that in the general population, uh, you know, some people have said, well, you know, this is a VA population, they're older, they're primarily men, um, uh, 
on average right now with the biggest studies about nine the the average duration of symptoms if you have long covid is about nine months if you've been hospitalized and about four months if you've not been hospitalized but i think what the study really illustrates is that there's a proportion of people who are going to have symptoms even beyond two years um but hopefully um you know this was uh this risk is not the same with uh current uh, exposure and to the Omicron flavors and with availability of vaccines and Paxlovid. So I think, you know, there's, we can go into that some more, but there's some, you know, at least silver lining data showing that in general, the risk of long COVID is going down um, with time, but it still doesn't take away the fact that, you know, of the 15 million people or more uh, who probably have some sort of, uh, chronic condition at some point uh, that that some of them will linger for a very, very long time and that it's going to have a big impact on society. Well, this is no rights. Can you provide suggestions for what people can do about long COVID like fatigue and brain fog? Do you, do you have suggestions for how people can deal with that, Peter? I think that's that's so hard, Mina, because uh, we don't really have any many good interventions. There are, I think, probably the best thing would be to to um, see if you can um, have a specialty clinic see you, and then there are a whole host of interventions and that they offer. Um, uh, you know that that may or may not be helpful depending on because there hasn't re- there hasn't been really great outcome studies so far. We spend more than a billion dollars in Project Recover to look at uh, some of these outcomes. And some of the, we haven't really had really good fruit, fruitful findings yet. We're hoping that we will. Um, but again, they really, because they are probably multiple causes of long COVID, it's like trying to find one pill that covers five different diseases. And I think that's probably why um, it's been challenging and, and it's very individual based um, how to deal with it. I think one thing that we've learned is that that exertion and exercise probably isn't beneficial um, in long COVID uh, as an example. Well, um, we are talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong about long COVID. We're hearing about your recent COVID experiences and answering your questions. The email address is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum or call 866-733-6786. Holly writes, I know five people in the San Francisco Bay Area who have recently gotten COVID who never had it before. These people have all been extremely cautious for the past three years, gotten all possible vaccines and continue to wear good masks over their nose and mouth, indoors and with other people. The people over 60 got very ill. Sorry to hear that, Holly. Thanks for sharing, and we'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. COVID cases are on the rise in California. We're hearing about a fall booster, the newest Omicron variant, long COVID, and your recent COVID experiences with infectious disease specialist Dr. Peter Chin Hong of UCSF Medical Center. And this sister writes, I caught COVID on July 16th and stayed positive for more than three weeks. I was coughing and unable to sleep for three days and stayed with upper respiratory symptoms for nearly two weeks. I had GI tract issues that lasted nearly a month. It was debilitating. I'm fully vaxxed and boosted, age 67, and in good health. Let me go to caller Victoria in San Francisco. Hi, Victoria. What's your question? Oh, hi. Um, really big fan, Dr. Chin Hong. Um, I had a question about uh, the nasal vaccines that I've heard were in the works for the prevention of even um, getting infection. So I, I was wondering if you knew the status of those and, and what's happening with that. Thanks, Victoria. Yes. Yeah, so thanks, Victoria, for the kind words. Um, there are um, uh, at least 100 trials of nasal vaccines out. Um, some of them are being used in um, in other countries like India and China and uh, Iran, I believe, uh, but none of them have been approved for use in the United States. There is probably the closest one is um, one out of a uh, 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 group in New York that might probably be the closest. And the idea, there are two ways to think about the nasal vaccine in terms of the future use. One is, and some of them have shown really good results like one of the University of Hong Kong, which is currently being used in China, has, you know, at least by the data we have, uh, kind of uh, 80% efficacy additionally of of helping augment, um, you know, the immune response. So the, the ways that it may be used in the future would be as either as a standalone uh, nasal vaccine without having a needle, although those are harder. And then the other one, like the way it's used in China right now, is that you have a combination of a, a vaccine, but you give the nasal um, uh, vaccine from time to time and the rationale to help keep prevention or keep, prevent infection. And the reason why it's thought of as um, better is because the things that don't... Um, get uh, that well augmented by the injectable vaccine is is mucosal immunity or it weighs off a little bit more, meaning that the immune cells just at the tip of your nose or your mouth. uh, And that's what the nasal vaccine will help uh, preferentially augment. So I think that's the hope for the future. We're not right there yet in the United States, but there are several products being tested and there are several countries using it already. Well, Shakay writes, how long are you supposed to isolate once you test positive? My sister, who's 39 weeks pregnant, tested positive on Tuesday. She isn't isolating from her husband and two-year-old, but is staying away from my father, who just got a pacemaker. How long after she tests negative can she see my father? That's a great question. I think right now the guidance is once you test positive, um, you know, you, you, you try to isolate for five days. And then from day five to 10 or day six to 10, uh, you can go out into the world uh, wearing a mask 
but and the, there's no need for testing. Uh, so the CC guidance is trying to get away from people buying tests to really um, calibrate the time. But if you do have access to tests, you can stop wearing the mask earlier than 10 days if you test negative. But after day 10, um, unless you're immune compromised or still having symptoms, um, generally the guidance is not to bother testing because there's some people who are going to continue to be positive for a long time but we still don't know what that means. And from the current studies, there isn't a lot of transmission beyond 10 days, even if there is detectable uh, antigen or uh, genetic material. Well, this is no rights. Is there any chance that home tests will cease to detect the antibodies to these ever more evolved variants? That's a great question. So far, so good. Uh, people have been doing uh, testing the home test with every successive change of the virus and so far they've still been performing well i think the main thing these days is that uh the incubation period between when you get exposed and when you get symptoms has been shortening overall over time so um you know i think uh testing earlier is the goal but then if you're negative to repeat the test you know 24 hours later or certainly if you have symptoms so it's just a matter of you know, repeating a test rather than the test itself not being as sensitive because of where Omicron hits, Um, particularly like, for example, if it starts in the throat, but you're testing your nose, uh, it may not, it may take a while for that test to turn positive. Well, Ira writes, how many people are dying from COVID currently? In the beginning of the pandemic, it seemed most deaths were from pneumonia and respiratory symptoms. It seems the current variants do not cause these symptoms. How are people dying from COVID? Yeah, so people are still dying from COVID, but fortunately, it's not um, causing you know, what we call excess deaths anymore. But they're still um, meaning that uh, you know more than than um, people as a population. We're not uh, dying more than we would in historical times, like say 2019. But we have about three to four hundred people a week dying in the U.S., uh, which is still a tragedy, I think, in my mind, because of the tools that we have. Um, but uh, on on average, at some points during the pandemic, we had more than 2,000 or more people dying a day. So I think, um, you know, we've, we've really decreased that risk. But again, I'm always a little bit worried about seeing the deaths. Can anyone who wants Paxlovid get it, uh, Dr. Chinong? Yes, uh, anyone who wants it can get it. It just depends on who's going to get the most, um, you know, I always ask people, is the juice worth the squeeze? And I think for sure the people who um, would have no problems getting it, uh, I think there's still some variability in how, how people how it's being prescribed. Uh, those who are 65 and those who are immune compromised. Um, but I think if anybody really wants it, I, I think, the California Department of Public Health has always been sort of liberal in the way they think about it. Um, but the studies have shown that the, the most benefit is in those over 50. Um, and that's where you might see uh, people talk uh, about, you know, how and who they would prescribe to. I see. Now, let me go to caller Bill in Santa Rosa. Hi, Bill. You're on. Hi. Thank you for this important topic today. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about my experience, and then I have a few questions. I'll keep it short. Um, I was exposed Friday at a music venue in Marin County. Um, 
three days later, uh, started to feel symptoms on Monday. Tuesday, I felt like I'd been hit by a bus. The mm. body aches were just massive and all over. Uh, Tuesday, it, uh, res- it got a little better. Today, um, well, today I'm still a little sick, but um, I'm 59 years old, pretty healthy. This is the third time I've got it. Uh, the first and second time were asymptomatic, except for a rash on my arms and legs, which I found out from a Cambridge study. Uh, seems to be an over-response of my immunity. Um, I didn't have any symptoms like I do this time, those two first times. But again, I was in a music venue, and it felt very uh, bad ventilation and very moist and humid uh, mm-hmm. all three times. Um yeah, so my questions are, um, are you aware of or can you talk about the asymptomatic rash, which I actually got with my first vaccine, too? Um, and uh, I'm curious, because I'm 100% European genetics, uh, there's the study about the European genetic resistance. Um, and I'm curious at this point, since I was exposed on Friday. Symptoms started on Monday. Is Paxlovid an option at this point? Mm. Um, And uh, uh, what should I be looking for uh, about long COVID? Bill, thanks. And I'm sorry that you are going through it right this moment as you're calling us. And glad you're starting to feel a little bit better. So the asymptomatic rash, if he can have Paxlovid, um, his risk for long COVID, (laughs) Dr. Chinong. Oh. Uh, yeah. So, Bill, first of all, I'm so sorry um, about your symptoms. I mean, being hit by a bus is no fun. Feeling like you're being hit by a bus is no fun. And 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 it really speaks to the fact that every time you get COVID, you just don't know what you are going to feel, even though you might have had asymptom, you know, very minimal symptoms before. Um, and that's why I'm always continuing to respect this virus. Um, in terms of Bill's questions, uh, first of all, the rash, yes, definitely could be uh, um, you know, immune response from his own immunity. And uh, we've seen that uh, many times over the pandemic. I think the most famous one that people might have remembered was COVID toes. So it's a similar kind of uh, reaction uh, of the antibody response that you get to fight the infection starts, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, affecting other parts of your body, including the skin. Um, the second question is about... Um, uh, whether or not uh, you can get Paxlovid. So Paxlovid is best, uh, it best works in the first five days. Um, uh, if people are still, uh, there is another drug, Remdesivir, that can be given at day seven. There's probably still a benefit after five days, um, you know, because it probably doesn't fall off the curve. But I, I would say talk to your healthcare provider um, uh, and you probably might get a benefit Um uh, if you get that, um, I, you know, you know, if if somebody was still having symptoms and it was day six or five and a half, I would probably give it to them. So I I, I feel it's still worth addressing uh, in terms of that. Uh, was there another question there, Mina? Um, there was the last one, I think, in terms of his risk for long COVID. Oh, yes, the risk for long COVID. So I think one interesting study was a study from the National Census Bureau that had been surveying U- U.S. population during the pandemic. And what they found out was that during uh, pre-Omicron, the risk was about 20%. And you might've heard that number before people reporting chronic symptoms. 
And they found that interestingly that during Omicron, it's around 10%. So that's kind of like the baseline risk that we're thinking now, 7 to 10% chance whenever you get an encounter. But you can lower, and this gets to the Paxlovid question too, Bill, you can lower that risk by taking Paxlovid because a study is showing that, uh, you know, there's a probably a 35% decrease in risk uh, of chronic symptoms if you take Paxlovid uh, after getting infected. And of course, you lower the risk by being vaccinated, which I assume Bill is. So Bill is probably starting off at a lower risk um, given Omicron being vaccinated and could potentially lower the risk by taking Paxlovid. We're taking your questions about the current state of COVID and the pandemic with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This listener is wondering if you can clarify what you said about long COVID and exercise. If someone thinks they have long COVID, should they avoid physical activity? Yes, and talk to your uh, clinician about it. But I think that was one of the biggest surprises that we've learned um, from long COVID that uh, in some people with uh, chronic conditions after COVID, exercise actually makes you feel worse. I mean, actually delay your recovery. Um, which seems paradoxical because usually, you know, when when you have some illness, you want people to get uh, up and running, and and that's why rehab is such an important part. I mean, we can we don't have time to go into each of the interventions based on symptoms that people have, but it's quite complex, and rehab is a big piece of that uh, with long COVID. So if people have long COVID, just don't automatically exercise, uh, but really try to engage in, in healthcare and, and have somebody help you um, calibrate that or, or get access to some sort of uh, rehab or, or specific rehab for, for uh, long COVID. Ryan in Davis is on the line. Ryan, go ahead. Thank you for taking my question. Um, so my question is pertains to, you know, I'm a relatively young, healthy individual and my, you know, my family risk for serious hospitalization and or, you know, death because we are, you know, we are vaccinated, we are boosted, I think two times. Um, we've recently gotten over a COVID infection. Um, that's what was my wife, Lily, calling it earlier. Um, but, you know, my question is pertaining to this recommendation to, you know, get an annual booster. I'm having a difficult time with whether or not that is most effective and is going to be, you know, um, beneficial for elderly population who, uh, you know, are, have more comorbidities and whether or not it's entirely necessary given um, the, you know, the vaccination status and the boosting status sort of prevents against serious hospitalization and or death. And, you know, in my opinion, it doesn't really matter if we get COVID again, uh, you know, unless we get, serious hospitalization and or, you know, you know, where to die. And so my question is, like, how how useful is it to make this recommendation for, you know, all of America, whereas it will be most beneficial to those who are elderly or have comorbidities? Does that make sense? You mean to get yes. an annual vaccine? Is that what you're asking, yes. Ryan? Go ahead, Peter. I think Ryan is asking a great question um, and, and, and really a, a question that people are debating right now, um, you know, is the vaccine uh, really something that everybody should take uh, every year? And, you know, I, I can say that we don't really know the answer, but if I was stuck in a desert island and I had only a certain amount of vaccines, I would make sure my mom got it and I wouldn't take it 
because Brian is right. Um, I think most people in the community uh, do have enough immunity stored up. Way think of getting measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines as a child. Apart from a booster, maybe in adolescence, uh, you don't really have to get vaccinated again uh, because there's enough people with immunity around. Plus, the the more times you get hit with something, the longer the immunity lasts. Uh, so that's kind of like the debate right now. But you know, I think having it available and having people have the option is probably uh, might be another recommendation the CDC might have. But but very very appropriate question and and very current by what Ryan poses. Well, Leslie wants to know: Do you think COVID will fall into a seasonal pattern? It doesn't seem to follow the standard patterns for cold and flu season yet. Um, I, I think that um, again with four summers now of COVID, um, most people thought, well, maybe you'll just be like influenza once a year. Um, and w- is this a worried year or is this how it will set up? But maybe you might see a situation where you have, you know, it's bimodal, you have more in the winter, but a little blip in the summer. And it's interesting that it's kind of like at the six month mark too, because that's, you know, when people get infected all at once in the community, maybe the it wanes off where you can get get re-exposed again and and all at the same time in the summer with the other human behavior patterns uh, that we talked about. And then again in the winter for longer with other viruses floating around. So I'm hoping it will just settle into, uh, first of all, I'm hoping it just goes away. But for the time being, I'm hoping it will be once a year, but it just seems that the summer uh, increase in cases is something that we continue to see. And we just have less than a minute, but you're hoping also that people will not skip the new RS vaccine, RSV vaccines that are coming out this fall. I know we had a scare with that last winter. Yes. Yeah, so I think this is the first year that we have uh, now three RSV vaccines available, but it's not available to everyone. There is an RSV vaccine for those over 60. I think it's most important for those who are 60 and older and have other comorbidities like immunosuppression or transplant. But if uh, the second uh group is those who are eight months and younger. And that's a monoclonal antibody that uh, people are still working out the flow for that, but that's usually after birth. And then the third will be uh, pregnant persons in the third trimester to to, uh, protect the newborn. Well, thanks for reminding us about that and for answering so many questions from our listeners who still very much have COVID on top of mind. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much, Mina. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center. And I'm being told we're going out with a song from Bill, who's currently getting over COVID and contracted at a music venue. This is his song COVID by Billy Delta and the Super Spreaders. (laughs) You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.